This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Recently, President Trump traveled to the Lincoln Memorial for a Fox News interview, and one comment generated a lot of attention in this country. It has been part of his ongoing battle with what he refers to as the lamestream media or fake news, the failing New York Times, and often, quote, scum reporters. In just a moment, we will talk to Lincoln historian and author Harold Holzer about our 16th president. Are there parallels to what President Trump is facing today? But first, here are President Trump's comments from Sunday, May the 3rd, in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial in our nation's capital. I am greeted with a hostile press, the likes of which no president has ever seen. Uh, The closest would be that gentleman right up there. They always said, Lincoln, nobody got treated worse than Lincoln. I believe I am treated worse. You're there. You see those press conferences. They come at me with questions that are disgraceful, to be honest, disgraceful. Their manner of presentation and their words. And I feel that if I was kind to them, I'd I'd be walked off the stage. I mean, they come at you with the most horrible, horrendous, biased questions. And you see it, 94 or 95 percent of the press is hostile. And yet, if you look in Florida today, we had hundreds and hundreds of boats going up and down the intercoastal, Trump, Trump. We have tremendous support, but the media is, they might as well be in the Democrat Party. And why, I don't know. We fixed our military, we fixed the vet. You know, if you look at the the VA, you take a look at what's going on with our vets. They have choice now, and we have accountability. We're able to get rid of people that don't treat our vets well. They've, They've been trying to do that for 44 years. And because of civil service and the unions, you couldn't do it. The biggest thing is choice. We've we've done choice where if a vet can't see a doctor quickly, they go outside, they get a doctor, they get fixed up. We pay the bill instead of waiting for five weeks, seven weeks. Look at how well these things are running. We rebuilt our military. We've done. We had the greatest tax cut, biggest tax cut in history. All of the things we've done. And yet we have a very hostile press. And, and you understand, I, maybe you're not going to say it or admit it, and maybe you shouldn't, but nobody's ever seen anything like this. So I really appreciate the question, and I, I very much appreciate the sentiment behind the question. But I'm standing up there, and instead of asking me a normal question, the level of anger and hatred, I'll look at him, I'll say, what's your problem? What is your problem? You know... I believe we've done more than any president in the history of our country in the first three years, three and a half years. I really believe that. That from a recent Fox News interview and joining us from Rye, New York, is author, historian Harold Holzer. His newest book due out in late August, The Presidents versus the Press, the Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Thanks for being with us here on C-SPAN. And first, your reaction to what the president said. Wow, where to where to begin? It um, it covered um, a dizzying array of subjects, but I think you want me to focus on the assertions about the press only, not about the VA or the military. So, so let's go there. Um, you know, it's just not true. Um, uh, he's you know made himself uh, the victim of hostility that's really no greater than that which has faced presidents from George Washington to uh, to Barack Obama. Every president has faced um, stiff questioning, tough questioning from journalists, and it's often driven them to distraction, although they were you know, generous enough to our ears and minds 
to keep it to themselves. Um, George Washington was the first president and the first to think that he was being abused by the press. In fact, he probably um, shunned running for a third term because he had been vilified by journalists who were loyal to Thomas Jefferson and the emerging Republican Party, the opposition to the Federalists. So this has been going on from the earliest administration, um, the earliest administration, yes, the earliest singular administration. Um, and um, and Trump just misreads history and, of course, um, inevitably, invariably makes himself the victim-in-chief. In a New York Daily News article this past week, you said that Lincoln responded quite differently with a soft voice and an iron fist when it came to the media. Can you explain? Yeah, and I've gotten into trouble with my family about this because they think that I'm going to give Donald Trump ideas. So I apologize in advance for for making this odious comparison. But, you know, Lincoln endured much. He certainly was criticized more than Donald Trump. Let's face it, Trump is um, it believes he's um, he's treated unfairly by by um, CNN and MSNBC, and sometimes even by Fox. Um, but he doesn't really deal much with. Uh, well, he does occasionally, but not routinely with print media. In Lincoln's day, the press was um, was either exclusively. Democratic or exclusively Republican, um, and they never varied from those political views. And um, their their news copy reflected their biases and their animus toward the opposition, both in news stories and in editorial pages. But Lincoln not only faced opposition and ridicule and charges of being a tyrant and a dictator, um, and also inviting um, a heaven forbid. African-American equality by Democrats. He was also attacked by all Southern newspapers, really the old Whig newspapers and the, and the Democratic papers universally, which, which you know, declared him an enemy of, of states' rights and freedom and their, and their right to continue holding people in slavery. And he was also victimized by the British press, which also detested him because his policies um, included a blockade that kept vitally needed supplies of southern cotton from the British mills and caused a one-year downturn in the British economy. So he got it from all sides, nothing like um, what Donald Trump endures by obsessing with television. At least Lincoln was smart enough not to read the papers every day, which provided some insularity uh, and the ability to go forward and do things on his own uh, without worrying about the press reaction. So that's that's um, that's a significant difference there. Yet Lincoln did write editorials before he became president, not using his name to attack opponents. Right. And I, Steve, I also realized I didn't answer your previous question. So may I do both? Sure. Yes, he was. He was a partisan editorial writer attacking Democrats, and he did that in his early days, even when he was a postmaster in New Salem, he was writing opposition editorials. But even on the eve of his becoming president, when he decided he didn't want to appoint a Southern, an additional Southern-born uh, cabinet member to balance his cabinet and avoid, possibly avoid civil war, he wrote an editorial saying, the president cannot do that 
because um, he will either have to bend, he will have to bend to the cabinet member as often as the cabinet member bends to him. So he wrote this third person um, argument that he should not do something that he was thinking of doing as a way of cutting it off. So he's very sly. Um, he really, he did it only once or twice as president. But in terms of the, the velvet glove and iron fist um, thing that you, you quoted um, a minute ago, and I, sorry, I, I got I was I was kind of Trumpy and I was getting um, no kind of worries. going off on a toot and I forgot the original question. But yes, what he did um, was crack down on newspaper dissent pretty violently, and some believe unconstitutionally. Now his argument was that during an active armed rebellion against the authority of the United States, he had the right with congressional blessing, but also before it got congressional blessing, to um, prevent treason and and also crack down on freedom of speech and the press um, without bothering to do it through the usual means of the libel laws. John Adams had done the same thing. Woodrow Wilson would do the same thing. And Franklin Roosevelt, to some degree, would do the same thing. But Lincoln closed down, or his administration shut down 300 newspapers or around 300 newspapers during the Civil War. Democratic papers were shut down. Editors were detained, imprisoned. And I could give you examples. Um, And he did it all the way through 1865, the final months of his life, um, pausing only to allow free-spirited criticism during election campaigns. So it was, um, you know, arguably a a different time, a national emergency caused by secession rather than a virus. Uh, But um, as my family has pointed out, uh, sometimes it's good when a president does not really know enough history to give him bad ideas. Well, let me follow up on two fronts. First of all, in your other book, Lincoln and the Power of the Press. And by the way, how many books have you written, Harold Holzer? Um. Written and edited, the new one will be number 54. It's amazing. <laughs> also with co-authorships, too. But but in that book, you talked about Lincoln going after treasonous statements in the press. So what would you classify, what did he classify as treasonous? Um, it, was, it was in the beginning, in 1861, the first year of the war, um, he shut down newspapers in border states where there was still secession sentiment if they argued for leaving the union so in newspapers newspapers in kentucky and missouri were menaced and shut down their printing presses destroyed type scattered in the street in baltimore when a newspaper advocated secession the union army shut it down and imprisoned its editor at fort mchenry in baltimore and what made it unusual is that his, he was the grandson of Francis Scott Key, who had written the national anthem by seeing the Star-Spangled Banner waving during a bombardment at Fort McHenry during the War of 1812. So that was the first wave. But then a, um, in after the Battle of Bull Run in July of 1863, the first 90 and 100-day volunteers in the Union Army ended their service. And Lincoln and the and the War Department had thought, 
Let's recruit people for 90 or 100 days. Let them get into one battle, and we will scatter the, these rebels, and, and, the, and the civil war will be over before it even begins. Well, that's not what happened. The Confederacy won the Battle of Bull Run, and suddenly the Union desperately needed to sustain its army going forward. And um, in, in New York, for example, a number of Democratic newspapers advised the young men who were coming home not to reenlist. That's what the administration immediately decided was treasonous, disclosing enlistment. And a federal grand jury brought a presentment, which is just short of an indictment, and it sort of usually leads to an indictment, against 15 or so New York newspapers for advising against recruitment. And then New Jersey did the same. And then Massachusetts, um, an editor was tarred and feathered for suggesting that people not reenlist. So that was the first thing. And um, all through the war, when uh, when the draft came, um, and um, it was no longer just about recruitment, but about submitting to mandatory recruitment, um, anyone who argued against it was, was menaced, shut down. Probably um, even, even in Washington, when um, newspapers friendly to Lincoln mistakenly put out war news that was considered giving aid and comfort to the enemy, um, a hackneyed phrase even then, they were shut down. Even friends of Lincoln occasionally went too far. So it, it spread to, to most northern cities. One of the last crackdowns was a newspaper in Bangor, Maine. So, again, as far north as you could be in this country, dissent was not tolerated. It afflicted Lincoln's home, home states of uh, Illinois and Indiana and Kentucky, all three states. And um, I guess it's a surprising side story to the Civil War. But I don't want for a minute to suggest that um, um, a, a pandemic um, creates any opportunities for crackdown against against uh, against free expression and the press coverage we need to sort out the truth from from non-truths because it doesn't it's totally different circumstance let me remind our listeners that we are talking with harold holzer he is the director of the roosevelt house at hunter college he's also the author of a new book out later this year the president's versus the press from the founding fathers to fake news the other part of my question is where was the debate in the 1860s over the first amendment you know i when i wrote the lincoln book uh lincoln and the press i looked in vain for expressions from that part of the press corps that wasn't subject to um, um, shutdowns and censorship for uh, advocacy of the free press. Most of the pro-Republican editors agreed with the crackdowns. At least that's what they editorialized. They said there is no guarantee of a free press that's treasonous in time of rebellion. Uh, These people have gone beyond freedom of the press, meaning the Democratic press. And they cheered it. Um, there, there was a final holdout. Um, Horace Greeley, the fractious editor of the New York Tribune, who was kind of an on-again, off-again Lincoln man, mostly off during the Civil War. And um, he tried organizing a group of journalists who would be the jury for whether editors had gone too far. And he, organ- he held a meeting, but most of the big newspapers... The, his fellow editors 
hated him so much they wouldn't participate. So as a result, they sent, um, you know, small newspapers and Greeley sent their ideas to Lincoln and he just ignored them. So that was that was a shocking discovery on my part to find out that most well, all Republican journalists ultimately agreed that Democratic journalists should be silenced. So there was no camaraderie among the press. And yet, Harold Holzer, here is one of the biggest dichotomies because no modern president has been more accessible to the media. He will often hold briefings that would last two, two and a half hours with reporters. And yet he's the first to criticize the coverage he gets from these events. And um, he may be smarter than um, any public relations expert and maybe most presidents because, A, he's hogging the limelight, um, as you point out, in an unprecedented and maybe non-presidential fashion, he's on constantly. Although at the you know as we speak, there's been kind of a lull in those uh, marathon um, uh, press opportunities, and then he gets to um, deride the results and question the patriotism, basically, of those who ask what sounds on the air, at least to me, to be innocuous uh, questions. Um, so I think he's he's, he's conducting a PR battle while seeking PR. And I think he finds it to be perfectly compatible. As long as he's the center of attention, um, battling or being out there and being on television, he's absolutely fine with it. And, and, you know, when we compare Lincoln and Trump or Trump and anybody, you know, up into the, into the modern era, there is a different, um, culture in, in availability by presidents. I mean, George Washington, barely spoke to journalists until the day that he invited a Philadelphia editor to the executive mansion and handed him his farewell address and said, would you publish this? The man was trembling. He was sitting next to the president of the United States. And he brilliantly asked him if he could keep the manuscript. Washington said yes. And um, and he created a sensation with his famous farewell address. By the way, the farewell address included a huge attack on the press, um, saying that he had been uh, vilified, he was disgusted with the excesses of the press, and Alexander Hamilton, who was kind of his ghostwriter slash editor, advised him to kill that paragraph so it never saw the light of day except in in the draft that we have um, that that, uh, Washington prepared but didn't publish. So again, Victimization has been going on. Most people have had the sense to keep it to themselves and simply get try for better press, try to trump the press, if you'll pardon the uh, the, the, the pun. Um, this Trump just lets it all hang out um, in soap opera fashion, um, in sort of stream of consciousness fashion, and um, for some reason, it's the, this the the reality show aspect of it seems to enchant everybody, and I think. You know, the press doesn't ask, to, in my view, considering the, the questions and attacks and uh, that I've seen in the research for my book, and I've seen press con- the, the transcripts of every Woodrow Wilson press conference, every Franklin Roosevelt press conference, every John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon press conference. Those are easier to get, but I'm really glad that they they did typescripts of the earlier ones. There's always been you know, uh, push back and I'm not answering that or that's and and presidents have, have isolated and 
blackballed reporters who asked tough questions. But some of the questions that they responded to were really tough. Not um, what about uh, you know um, what about testing and you know it, uh, and such an innocuous question like that triggers a tirade that doesn't seem that doesn't seem to be justified by the by the by the kind of innocent or responsible question. Um, I chalk it all up to a kind of carnival showmanship that he seems to be very adept at. And in researching your new book on the presidents versus the press, did you look into what some called the charm offensive by FDR or the humor used by Ronald Reagan with the press? Um, I did. And, um, you know, it's a really good lesson. And and you can go back to Lincoln as well uh, for this. Um, The presidents who charmed journalists and got them on their side were the most successful in history and usually politically, too. And, of course, Lincoln spent his pre-presidential career uh, visiting editors wherever his legal career in Illinois took him. He befriended editors. He he wooed them. He impressed them with his knowledge of politics and local issues. By the time he was ready to become or needed to become a favorite son for the presidential nomination, they were his biggest boosters. And in turn, he gave them all federal jobs, by the way. Um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt invited the journalists in to the inner sanctum of the president's office in the new West Wing. And um, he gave them what uh, access to what he came to call his barber's hour. So every day at one o'clock, his, his, uh, his valet, uh, for want of a better word, would shave him in the little hallway between the Oval Office and um, the next office. I guess it's um, it, the, the the hallway is still there. I think I've seen it in the Clinton days. And he would um, journalists would amuse themselves by asking him intentionally provocative questions to see if he would leap up so fast that the barber would cut him with a straight razor. The barber was always very nimble. He was always pulling back when T.R. leaped out of his chair to object to a question. So they had fun with it, and 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 um, many of them felt um, you know close to him, and he endeared himself to them, um, even though he was sort of hard to to handle in 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 uh, the latter part of his term and when he ran for uh, a third term in a comeback attempt in 1912. FDR was so, um, tried so hard to get the press on the side, and of course he had done that as governor and as, uh, even as a state senator, that a gentleman's agreement reigned for his entire uh, 12-year uh, term, uh, 12 years in office, that no mention, barely any mention, would be made of his paralysis, of, his, of the need he had to get about in a wheelchair, um, of his decreasing ability to to hobble around on crutches and give the impression that he was walking um, with um, with crutches and with the help of one of his uh, one of his uh, sons, um, photographers who try to take a picture of him in a wheelchair or or um, being helped in and out of automobiles often have them their 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 cameras jostled or even smashed by fellow photographers. And there was later there was an official ban on such photographs, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, talk about a crackdown! But in the in the early days, the the photographers just didn't want to give him a hard time because they knew he was trying to repair a, a, a fractured 
economy and help people. And publishers hated Roosevelt. A majority of publishers never endorsed Roosevelt for election in all four terms. And Roosevelt loved complaining about them and did in pretty vitriolic press conferences, by the way. But they were never broadcast until the very end. Uh, they were just for the the print guys and uh, and one or two women and off the record for the most part, unless he put things on the record. But yes, charm offensive go along. Charm offensives go a long way. John Kennedy had been a working journalist um, of sorts after World War II, and um, and counted many journalists among his his golfing buddies and drinking buddies and carousing buddies and. Uh, uh, his secrets, his secret life, both in terms of his health and in his um, marital infidelities, were all kept quiet by um, a kind of a gentleman's agreement that uh, he was one of the guys, and they they weren't going to going to uh, to uh, to break the code. Is that good for democracy? I don't know, but it certainly helped the president more than the constant battle does, I think. And Ronald Reagan's. Um, wit and charm and the grace with which he overcame an assassination attempt and a serious injury um, endeared him him to reporters even when he was vexingly unavailable, uh, when he pretended he couldn't hear their questions as he was walking to his helicopter, as he um, refused to, to answer questions during these elaborately staged photo opportunities that uh, he basically invented. Um, even when he said that we're going to bomb Russia uh, into an open mic when he was rehearsing one of his radio broadcasts, he had he had built up such a charm offensive and such a patina of uh, of uh, positive attitude that it couldn't it could never be broken even by Iran Contra at the end of his administration. And if I could, just one side note, because it's been getting a lot of attention in the last couple of days uh, on the issue of coronavirus. And we learned that one of the president's personal valets testing positive for the virus. When you saw that headline, what was your immediate reaction? My immediate reaction um, was that um, a valet can uh, threaten the health of a president. As, uh, but in the case of Lincoln... Uh, about whom we open this conversation, uh, a president can infect a valet. It's it's an eerie parallel story, but um, Abraham Lincoln had an African-American valet named William Johnson, came with him all the way from Springfield on the train, and got to Washington. Lincoln said, I'm hiring you for the White House staff, and he forgot that the White House staff had the final word, apparently, because they wouldn't have a person of color on the staff. And Lincoln tried to get him hired by several federal departments. Two of them said no. Finally, he became uh, Johnson became a uh, a messenger uh, for the War Department, and Lincoln, by special understanding with the Secretary of War, would borrow him to be his barber or messenger for critical documents that he wanted moved around Washington quickly. And so he became Lincoln's valet again, a de facto. In cut to 1863, and Lincoln goes to Gettysburg to give her to give this the most famous what will become the most famous speech of his presidency, and William Johnson, of course, goes with him to help him, and uh, is with him, uh, you know, is in charge of his wardrobe and his meals, uh, late at night on the night before the address, 
he gets him ready for bed, and the next morning, the morning of the great event, he gets him ready for the ceremony for the horseback ride to Gettysburg. And then after the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln seems to be coming a little bit listless. Um, Johnson is with him as he goes back on the train, and that's when Lincoln begins to feel unwell. Johnson helps him to a berth in the train, gets a cold cloth and puts it on his head, and Lincoln has a pretty difficult journey back to Washington. Doctors are summoned, and uh, they discover that he's come down with smallpox, which is a killer virus, um, a killer virus in 1863. Lincoln's son has just had a close call with smallpox. I think Lincoln probably caught the disease from the little boy. And when he gets back to the White House, he's in bed for three weeks. It's the only time he was sick during his entire presidency for more than a day with a cold. And um, William Johnson, ever faithful, continues to attend him. And then um, after Lincoln recovers in December, we see a, a note in a Washington newspaper in January. Lincoln's valet has smallpox. And then by the end of January, there's a note in that same paper, just a little news box that says that William Johnson is dead of smallpox. So I have no doubt that um, he got the virus from the president. Uh, There were no masks in those days, no social distancing, no testing, no contact tracing. But um, his loyalty resulted in, uh, I have no question, in in his premature demise. He was only in his 30s, in his early 30s. And uh, Lincoln took it very hard. And um, he uh, he helped pay off Johnson's mortgage. He made sure that his final salary warrants were cashed for the wife and the family. Um, uh, he earned only $6,600 a year, so it's like $12 a week. And um, he um, paid for his burial at what is now Arlington National Cemetery. And by legend, he also paid for his gravestone marker, um, which um, Lincoln had declined to do for his own father back in Illinois. So there's a certain poignancy and certainly an extraordinary show of empathy for this tragedy that Lincoln clearly felt some responsibility for. And it's, you know, it's just nice when presidents can accept responsibility and do the right thing. And um, he certainly did. Um, I'm just curious, not to prejudge, because we don't know yet what the reaction would be, with whether um, President Trump will treat his afflicted valet with uh, anything resembling that kind of understanding and sympathy. We shall see, I suppose. The insights of Harold Holzer. He is the director of the Roosevelt House at Hunter College. His new book, The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, from the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Joining us from Rye, New York, thank you for being with us. And a reminder, the weekly and all of the C-SPAN podcasts, they're easy to find on our website at cspan.org slash podcasts. And be sure to rate and review us and follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening. Thank you.